Filmmaker Denny Tedesco is the son of legendary session guitarist Tommy Tedesco. When his father became ill in the 1990s, Denny started collecting interviews with his father and the other LA session musicians who made up the legendary Wrecking Crew. They played on some of the greatest recordings of all time, from Sinatra to the Beach Boys, the Mamas and the Papas to the Birds. These interviews became the basis for Denny's award-winning documentary, The Wrecking Crew. Today we dock with Denny about his film, his father, and the other musicians who made up that incredible group. And stay tuned to the end of the episode, when we have a couple of bonus clips from the film, outtakes featuring the likes of Glenn Campbell and other members of The Wrecking Crew. Today's guest is a, a, a filmmaker, Denny Tedesco. He's got a terrific film out called The Wrecking Crew, which uh, has just been in theaters. And uh, is it out on DVD yet? Or June 16th. June 16th, coming yeah. out on DVD of 2015. And so you, you will be able to get it right about the time this podcast airs. Perfect. So that'll be great. Um, and it is about The Wrecking Crew. That's right. Probably... The greatest, well, one of the greatest. Uh, I mean, there was actually two or three really great uh, '60s uh, studio session groups. Yeah. And uh, but they were on, uh, as Chris said earlier today, pretty much everything in the '60s. Well, at least in the '60s in Los Angeles, for sure. I mean, they were like a necessity of this business. You know, the they because remember, if in the '60s there was only they were, there was only one track. You know when they were recording, so all those guys that were uh, the labels didn't trust the groups. You know the labels thought, well, we're not going to put take you know precious studio time and do rock and roll because they didn't think these kids could do it. And most of the time, those kids couldn't do it. You know, so they hired studio musicians to cover them, and just made it happen. That's right. So, like you said, welcome to another edition of the Chris Kirkwood sure. podcast. Yes. Yeah, and I forgot who today, I was. And our guest today, we're lucky enough to have Denny Tedesco in. Thanks for coming Thank in, Thank you. And I'd like to point out that uh, Denny is the son of a member of the Wrecking Crew, Tommy Tedesco. That's correct. Legendary Tommy Tedesco, as far as I'm concerned, who uh, was noted by Guitar Player Magazine as being probably the most recorded guitar player of all time. Probably at some point. I mean, that's what they said. That's yeah. the, some, something I got out of those guys, you know. And uh, and you made a film about your dad yeah. and and the guys that he worked with. And like you said, Bill, out on DVD, or you said, you know, it's out yeah. on DVD, and it's in the theatrical releases now, and it's called The Wrecking Crew. So I, I'm i about your age, you know. Right. So You're older than me. I'm older than you. I think yeah. six months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, so so just, you know, let's, let's keep off. that in mind. <laughs> But, you know, growing up in the 70s, at a point I got into, you know, music, right? Right. Got into it, like, you know, as a young teen. Right. You know, and then, like, uh, I read Guitar Player Magazine. Yeah. You know, in the 70s. And your dad had an uh, article in there. Right. Studio log. Studio log. Yeah. And he talked about this stuff that was just, like, mystical in a way to me, you know? And, and uh, you know, so it's, it's something that I've been aware of for a really long time, you know? Right. And, and being a musician, I was conscious of the fact that... The wrecking crew existed, right? You know? But a lot of people don't know that. Sure. Right? And so, I mean, I think it's a really cool thing that you've done, you know, to bring this to light. You right. know, well, to, thank you. You know what what was actually going on in those situa in, in, in you know in those recording situations? Like you said back then, the 
now they have Pro Tools and all this kind of stuff. People right. can make records at home, you know, and, you know, you, there's no rewinding of the tape or any of that kind of stuff, yeah. you know. But those guys were all doing stuff live in the studio, yeah. you know. And they had the chops to be able to do it. Right. So what what was your dad's background in guitar? I mean, are, are you from a musical family? No, was... no, no. Far from it. I mean, like, unless you think of uh, the great classical composer Tedesco who wrote the concerto you know the guitar concerto mm -hmm. but when they asked my father was he any relation my father always said yes he's a distant, <laughs> distant yes. cousin distant cousin you know <laughs> um no it was um dad and mom came out of Niagara Falls New York okay um you know my grandfather was you know mixture of jobs I think he was a baker he was an insurance man he was construction you know there was just Italian folks mm -hmm. in Niagara Falls uh, he started playing guitar, I think, when he was young, but not really playing. You know, he um, he didn't really. I mean, he was awful. Uh, the, his teacher said he was the worst he ever had. So that's the <laughs> irony: the fact that he made a hell of a career out of it. Right. And it wasn't until 1953. He's 23 at the time. Um, he's working in a chemical factory, and my mom and him got they got invited to a dance at Niagara Falls University, and. And they went, and there was a big band there, and the big band was losing his guitar player. So they, someone found out and said, hey, my friend plays guitar. So he auditioned that night. He got the job. And this big band, Ralph Martieri, big band, left, went to New York City, went around the country, got to Hollywood, played down the street at the Hollywood Palladium, okay. um, and did all kinds of, you know, the Hoagie Carmichael show and all these great things. And then went on the continued on the road, got to Dallas, and they fired my father and the singer. And they basically downsized and got someone that could play guitar and sing. <laughs> so it right. hasn't changed. Right. <laughs> Cut a guy. Um, but my father was so ashamed, he didn't want to go back to Niagara Falls. Okay. So he, um, excuse me, called my mom and um, said, hey, you know, Hollywood looks great. We should go to Los Angeles. You know, we could probably get some work there. To... And so they moved. And then I asked my mom recently, I said, mom, did... How long was it? You know, a year, year and a half? She goes, no, it was three weeks. He literally was so ashamed about going back to the small town in Niagara Falls, New York, where they're rooting against you. Right. You know, they don't root for you in these places sometimes, that he just picked up and left and uh, went to Hollywood and started his career. So he was able to get a gig with a big band. I mean, did he have, like... He must have had good enough chops to... He was able to read, and there was a song... Read. Yeah, not... He was probably an average reader at that point right um the only reason i say that is because just listening to him tell others you know it wasn't until later that he really became a hell of a reader right um but at that time there was a song that band had a hit it was called uh, carnival um carnival mm -hmm. and um it was a guitar lead so he was able to play it and that's what got him the gig and i think i think in some ways maybe you know the music of that era you know I mean that big band stuff. Yeah, it was you know, more rhythm. You know, and and kind of different little chord things. You know, yeah. the guitar play. That, you know, yeah, Freddie Green stuff and all that. You no, know, know the way around the guitar yeah. exactly. You know, know the way around a little bit more in yeah. some way. You know, and doing that rhythm stuff. Whereas and then rock and roll came along and kind of right. rewrote things where suddenly, you know, and then punk rock happened where it's just right. like you know you could do practically anything. Yeah. You know, and you know I could I could have maybe played punk. Maybe. Oh, you could have easily. You still can. We could start a band right now. Start hitting my head with it. <laughs> there you go, dude. You know Which I, mean? I do regularly. So you know? it doesn't matter. You know, so you know, maybe maybe the uh, the chops were there, but I mean to get to the point that your dad got to, you know, where you're so facile on the instrument, you know what I mean? Well yeah, you know? it's interesting because he 
when he came to Los Angeles, you know, they had no idea what to expect. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, we're all in our 50s, right. you know, and, well, he and I are in our 50s. I don't know what you guys are. but <laughs> 20s. Uh, yeah, good point. Good Young, call. early 20s. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, but <laughs> when he came here and he was trying to get a gig, obviously you just don't put in your, your resume. You know, right. that's not how any musician gets their, you know, there's more than a resume to put in. So he would play clubs, and then when he wasn't, you know, as like sit in, you know, jam, meet people. That's how you, you know. In between, though, he would practice. He While would my practice. mom was work, he would take care of my older brother, and if you know, he would practice all night. He would take the music literally. He would take trumpet books, read those, sax books, read those. He knew how to transpose instantly. There was something in that mind of his. Right. And you would understand it more as a musician than I do because I'm not a musician. Mm -hmm. But he could see patterns, right. I think. That's where I think the reading comes from. He would know instantly, you know, where he was on his guitar. He right. said it's just memorizing. But he would literally, he would take the music and flip it upside down and read it backwards. Wow. The reason was because then he would just be throwing a piece of music. It could be God Bless a Child or Nature Boy, whatever it is. Right. He already knows that song. Well, let's see if it's upside down what it looks like. Right. And just practice it that way. Well, that's one of the cool things that I've, I, I, you know, love about music. And one of the things that got me into it is just that, like, you can practice. You know, you can like, like the more you do it, the better you get at it in a way. Right. And the better you get at it in a way, the more you can, you know, quickly take things on, and it kind of grows out. And there's yeah. never really any boundary to it. You know what I mean? Other no. than who you are, you know, and like the the work ethic you have or whatever. Yeah. You know, and you see people that you know definitely put in the time you know and I, I remember hearing something about how long it takes to become like a a, like a, a master or something yeah. like 10,000 hours or yeah. something you know and then, now you're talking about like like classical players maybe or something right. you know where there's just such a such an incredible level of musicianship well you appreciate this my father used to tell the kids you know when he was doing those seminars you know around the country and at musicians institute and GIT he said you guys you get lucky playing golf you can right. hit the ball, maybe go three hundred yards. You right. get lucky on that. You don't get lucky on your guitar. Right. You have to. You've got to practice. Right. And he used to describe guitar players in three different uh, uh, ways. He said, guitar player number one is the guy that could pick up any instrument. Someone teaches him something, he's got it going, and he fixes it. You know, he could get chord. You know, he knows it. He's one of those guys, those talented people. You know, savants, whatever you want to call it. Then you got guitar number two, who's basically he's got talent, but he's got to work at it. He's really got to, you know. And he was guitar number two. And then you got guitar number three, the guitar player that wants to be touched by the magic wand. Right. That was me. I, I'm still waiting for the wand to touch me. <laughs> right. You know, I can't get to the third chord yet. I'm one of these days. I'm, you know. But that's, you know, you just have to work at it. Yeah. You know, so he did his 10,000 hours, I guess. Yeah. I, you know, must have. And, and then, so they moved out here in 53 then. Yeah. You know, in a, a different city for sure, you know. And, yeah. But not far from where we're sitting right now in Hollywood. Right. You know, it's really interesting is, you know, we're, we're at Santa Monica and uh, Gower uh -huh. where we're recording this. You know, all within, well, two blocks over at uh, Vine was uh, Gold Star Studios. Right. All these, this area was all filled with studios. Right. You know, which is really cool. At what, what point did you start getting, like, studio gigs? Do you know? I would say 57. 57. 58, these things started clicking. He sits in in clubs. He would sit in and meet someone like Howard Roberts. You know, Howard would turn him on. Hey, could you cover me on this gig? And it might be just a, uh, um, you know, a, a casual or, a, you know, jazz date or something. 
you know, we always do is try to get a sub to cover you so you could go get the better gig. Right. You know, he got the one time to get Peggy Lee. He got the Peggy Lee gig from Howard, and um, just to cover. And he was like panicked because Howard Roberts was the god. Mm-hmm. You know, Howard could go. He's a you know chords all over that guitar. Right. And um, my father went in and you know did the gig and she stopped. She goes, "Who are you?" <laughs> and he's thinking, "Oh God, here it comes." And he's thinking he's dead. And she goes, "I like this guy." The reason she liked him because he barely played. My father mm-hmm. at that point, he didn't want to step on anything, so he kind of you know in doubt lay out. Well, right. He was just playing his you know rhythm instead of playing those beautiful chords that Howard would do. Right. You know, singer always coming down on the guitar player. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we avoided that in our band. We went ahead and and, and went without a lead singer. Exactly. Get rid of singers. <laughs> so at what point? Do you remember, like, you know, realizing that that's what your dad did for a living? You know, I asked this all the time, but it's weird because it's hard to... I didn't know there was any difference, mm-hmm. you know, because I didn't know what he... I know he went to work like everybody goes to work. Right. You know, he just happened to have a guitar in his in his trunk. He had, you know, his classical, his Telecaster, his 12-string, his steel string, and mandolin and banjo, I think, is what he carried, mm-hmm. and an amp. Um, but I never really saw him play until the seventies. Oh, really? Yeah, because he never practiced. He didn't need to. He's practiced. You know, he's played all day long. Right. So he never like came home and let's. Jam- he's not going to jam and do his own thing. And he wasn't doing his own thing. He was just you know gun for hire. Right. Um, until he started doing his own jazz, that's when I started playing. It was probably about the mid seventies. I started realizing, you know, when or maybe even earlier when you know he was on the Partridge Family albums. My friend right. goes, "Hey, your dad's on the Partridge Family album." <laughs> Oh, that's cool. I you was going to say, I mean, because seeing some of the stuff that your dad played on, you know, th- those these are TV shows that we grew up on. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's weird because I'm growing up loving Batman, not knowing that's my dad on guitar. He on Batman. He played on the Bonanza theme, yeah. the Twilight Zone. No, he didn't play on Twilight Zone. That's, that's, that's oh, he one didn't of those, play on that? No, that's just one of those internet things that are wrong. Okay. He played on Twilight Zone, the movie. Okay, the Twilight Zone movie. Well, that's well, a good movie. Yeah, well, and the, <laughs> the, the actual theme was stolen, I think, from... Uh, a French recording. So that came out of France somewhere because my father always wondered who it was. So when he did the actual movie huh. years later, you know, the Landis film, and um, he was he asked the composer, who did this originally? That's what he found out. That do, 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 yeah. do, do, do. Yeah. That's French. Okay. Yeah. But he was on Green Acres? Green yes. Acres, which is the earliest recording I ever went to because I never went to many recordings. Right. And I went to that one. God, I wish I had his book. I would I gotta look to see because it's right around the corner where they would have recorded it. Mm-hmm. Um, the Green Acres was like a Monday gig. I remember it was like I saw it in his book. You know, eleven o'clock Mondays or whatever it was every week, and um, that was the earliest I remember because we went there to go take him to work that day because we were going on vacation that week, and we never went to work with Dad. But I remember sitting in the booth. I must have been five years old watching this grown man, Vic Mizzy. Who's the great conductor and composer? Throw, you know, conducting, throwing his arms and hips out, and right. it looks so silly, you know, because <laughs> you don't know what he's doing. Right. Never seen a composer in my life, you know, or a conductor. Mm-hmm. And he's doing the Green Acres theme. Yeah, you know, Dad's it is doing a great the, theme song. It is a great theme song. You know, it's funny because the those theme <laughs> songs, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, all those theme songs of those day. There was a, uh, I did an interview actually uh, years ago with Schwartz. Um, I totally went blank. The composer, he did the Brady Bunch. Oh, Sherwood Schwartz. Yeah, 
And he said in those days, in those 70s and 60s, you had to get the story across quickly if you had lyrics so that you could set up the film. So Green Acres was a perfect, or set up the TV show. So right. if you watch that opening, you know instantly what the rest of the show is going to be about. Right. Um, you know, that, the Brady Bunch, you know, all these Here's things. There's a story. The Beverly Hillbillies. Hillbillies, you know what I mean? Yeah. All these, you know, you had a minute to do a nice little trailer. Um, um, opening an score. intro that an intro score that told the, the story yeah you know I mean and Green Acres is such a good example of it you know yeah and the, even Get Smart is it even and Get Smart is in a sense too because you kind of know it's a how they cut it you know you go okay this guy's a you know he's a spy he's going to you know he's and that intro the, the intro on that show where he goes through all those doors yeah exactly closes on him in we the know beginning. something's going to happen so you didn't go to a lot of the sessions with your dad. No, no, no. And it's funny because I asked my mom a couple um, months ago, I said, did you go to these sessions with dad or even these nightclub acts? You know, where he was playing with maybe Lenny Bruce or or uh, Peggy Lee. And she goes, no, no. Dad always said a plumber doesn't take his wife to work, you know, and right. that's what it was. Work was work. And, you know, it was a focus. It was a work ethic between dad and even my mom. You know, they had... You know, don't forget there are two Italian kids coming out of Niagara Falls, New York. You know, they don't know what's going on. Dad's ready to give up after maybe eight months here, mm -hmm. nine months. And my mom said, no way, we're not going back. Right. And the reason was because when they were about to leave, you know, within those three weeks, one of their friends, you know, quote unquote friends, said, you guys will be back. Meaning like you're gonna, you're not gonna make it, type of thing. So that was one of the reasons why they never came back. Uh, and the winners. And the, you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, you just don't want to. And uh, thank God, my mom stuck it out. Right. You know, then over those years, and dad went to work. Um, mom stayed home, raised the kids, but not just raised the kids. In those studio days in the '60s and '70s, it was an answering service, and these, and that's how you got your work. So if you had a, um, let's say, a job, you would call the answering service and say, hey, uh, I need to get Tommy, I need to get Hal, I need to get Joe Osborne, Larry Nectar, whatever. Give them a call, see if they're available. And they were answering service. I think one was called Your Girl. The other one that everybody had was Arlen's. There's like three of them. They were like focused on the musicians. And that's how you get your gigs. Um, or they call them at home, but we didn't have, don't forget, we didn't have machines at home. Right. So you always had to have somewhere where someone was going to take this call. And my father in the 60s had three lines, like a rotary line, like an office. So God help us if the kids had all three lines tied up, we'd kill us. Because you don't have a busy signal in that house. Right. It's got to, someone's got to answer that phone because that's a call for work. Right. That's the work ethic. Right. And was it, I mean, I read a quote by Carol Kay where she said at a point, she was making more money than the president. It's very possible. So, you know. I mean, because I looked it up, actually. Did you? <laughs> I looked it, yeah. I checked out, because it's been coming up a lot. The president made $200,000 a year. So she was making more than that, she said. Possibly. Possibly. I mean, I can't, I'm not, you know, unless I go back in files. But it's very close. I mean, they were making a good living. He was doing, they were, you know, don't, they were going, you know, dad in 67 is the heyday. Uh -huh. The reason I say that for records, not so much, you know, he was doing film later, but the heyday in 67 because uh, the union had, they'd done some research, one of the guys there, he said, your dad, Hal, and Earl had the most contracts that year. And th they were in the 400s, each of them. So you got to figure 400 different uh, contracts 
Well, that's 400 dates. Well, you spread that over three, six, 365 days. Right. You're doing two, three a day. Yeah. You got weekends off, most likely. You maybe took some vacation time, Christmas, maybe some cash dates. Who knows what happened? You know what I mean? Yeah. So they were busy. They were busy. You know, and, um, but then, you know, it's that peak. You go up there and you peak at that point with the records. Right. Yeah. Now, when did your dad kind of hook up with the rest of the. I think in the early 60s, it seems like when I'm doing the research, you know, he was really uh, at the beginning known, I think, as the jazz guy, you know, a jazz guy, because he's working with uh, the Dave Pell Octet. Uh, he's working with um, a lot of jazz you know, orchestras and stuff. And, um, and sooner or later, you start, they started doing stuff with Jan and Dean. Um, and then it was uh, Phil Spector's Wall of Sound. Right. And so you start meeting all these guys. And that's how it happens. You start meeting, you go, you recommend each other. Right. Um, so he moved over into the rock. Yeah, moves over world. into the, you know, that, so they start Seasons doing other pop. things with each other. And some of the, I mean, some of the stuff that, he's, that he played on, it's just incredible. I mean, you know, it's just all of the stuff that was huge then, you know? And then like, yeah, I mean, he, he's part of the Wall of Sound. Yeah, yeah, the Wall of Sound Phil had, and it goes back to the jazz thing with Phil, I think because Phil was, I would call him maybe a frustrated jazz guitar player because he had, you know, if you looked at the room, it was all jazz guys. Right. You know, the guitar players, for sure. You had Barney Kessel, Howard Roberts, yeah. my father, uh, Bill Pittman, Carol Kay, the only other woman of the group. You know, they were all from the jazz world. I, I think, you know, I think, you know, you look at like uh, like Motown as well. Yeah. You know, those dudes were all jazz players as well. Yeah, because that kind of you know? what their era is coming out of. You know what I mean? They're not, you know, all those guys are all of the same age. So in 1960, you know, you got... Well, Brian Wilson, I th what would he have been, 18 maybe? Something. Dad's 30. Right. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of experience that, at that point, 1960, from these session musicians who are getting the jobs from the labels and producers. So there's a lot of experience. Well, that experience is coming from the jazz world. They're coming out of the jazz world, or maybe the country world. Right. You know, where you had, you know, um, Glenn Campbell coming out of there, which he was a phenomenal uh, session guitarist at the time. And, and one of the other guys I know, just throw this in there was Al Casey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, well, I tell you, you know Al from uh, Phoenix, from Phoenix, right? You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I never actually met him. You know? Yeah, such a gentleman. He but as a kid, guy. I, uh, you know, was getting into playing, and they had a at high school they had a um, career day thing. You know, yeah, we could go like, you know, what do you want to be? You know, I want to be a dentist or whatever. Go to yeah. a dentist's office, and I, you know, I wasn't hell bent on being a musician, but I was definitely hell bent on like, you know, you know sitting around smoking as much grass as I yeah. could and whatnot, you know, and I loved to play at the time. So I decided, you know, I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to our studio. And it was actually 7th Street Recorders where they, you know, where Al came out of, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, it was still around back at the time, you know. And and, and I think uh, Glenn Campbell had a, a a bit of a connection. I mean, I know he lives in Phoenix now, you know. Well, he actually, unfortunately, he's in a home in Nashville now. Oh, is he now? Yeah, yeah actually, he's in a home now. Has. No, because I know. Him. But when I did my interview, he was in Phoenix. Yeah. And then they, well, about maybe eight years ago, they moved to L.A., back to Malibu, and then, uh, unfortunately, I had to put him in a home. Right. Um, yeah, there was a connection there in Phoenix, as well as, I think, Lee Hazelwood. Lee there was Hazelwood, a lot of those yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah. He, I, just the other day, my at home, my girlfriend uh, pulled out this box of uh, old newspapers, you know, mm. she's in, into kind of, you know, 
retro-ish stuff right. and whatnot, you know, and just and it's just charming. And we're looking through one, and I came upon an article where Lee Haz- it was they were talking about Lee Hazelwood, you know, starting this new record company, you know, and he went on to do so much great stuff. But it was just this little blurb in the paper from the wow. '50s, you know, talking wow. about an interesting stuff. I mean, and one of the other one of the guys that your dad played with, he played on Donkashane. Yeah, Wayne Newton by the by the by the Wayner. Yeah, and uh, Wayne is out of Phoenix. Oh, is he from Phoenix? I mean, he was there, definitely there was the thing. There was a thing called the, the Lou King Ranger Show. Right. You know, this guy Lou King. You know, it was one of those early, '60s, maybe late '50s, even that he was on. And you know, it was on for a, a minute when I was a kid. You know, and wow. Cut a, a, a bit of it, and it kind of got it. Wayne got a start kind of on that. You know. And wh- that originally, I think that song was going to be Bobby Darren's song. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I think, and then Bobby Darren, if I remember, it's either Bobby Darren or Jimmy Bowen, uh, produced that. But uh, it was originally supposed to be Bobby Darren did Don Cushane, and but Wayne know, did it, and he made it his own. Yeah, you know, and he's gone on to be yeah. the Wayner. That, and that's a that's a good song because that always gets you somewhere. Yeah, a movie oh, or God, what is it? Oh, it's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. That's they, right. They yeah, yeah, yeah. Such yeah. good effect. Yeah. So, how about like? Uh, did you know the other uh, other guys? No, the- I didn't know. The only person I knew who actually lives. Outside, well, he lives outside of Tucson. Was uh, Snuff Garrett, the producer, mm-hmm. and because Dad never brought anybody home, really. You know, you're working twelve hours a day. We lived in the valley. Mm-hmm. You know, we were probably a good thirty minutes away from Hollywood. Right. So where we lived, I don't think anybody. I don't know who knows who lived out there, but um, Dad never mixed. He came home, did his. You know, if he didn't, uh, if he wasn't working. Then he was with the family. If he wasn't with the family, he was playing cards and gambling. Mm-hmm. So sometimes he could do all of it at once. Right. <laughs> but it wasn't like a big social scene. They were no, like, no, no, no. It's funny. Maybe the other guys had a social scene, but I never met Hal. I met Hal Blaine maybe once or twice as younger as younger because mom and dad went on a vacation with him. But other than that, I didn't meet any of those guys. Uh, didn't meet Don Randy till years later. Or Carol. Knew all those names. Right. I mean, Jackie Kelso. I knew this guy's name for years. Jackie Kelso. Jackie Kelso. I got to finally interview Jackie after, way after my father passed. Right. And you know, I'm expecting some Italian guy, right? You know, Jackie Kelso. What do I know? I, any vowel in my life is usually an right. Italian right. from my parents' side. And I'm interviewing the guy, and he's such man. This guy was wild. Just not wild. I mean, he was just so intelligent and so like. Something about this guy would just take you for hours as you just in listening to him talk. But then part of the conversation is talking about segregation, music and uh, segregation in L.A. Mm-hmm. You know, the black and, and the white union and music. And he's saying, I used to play with Buddy Collette. We were, it was a segregated band. And I'm thinking, what's he talking about? I didn't realize Jackie was African-American. You know, because he was so light-skinned. Uh-huh. So I didn't realize all these years Jackie Kelso was African-American, right. even when I saw him. He was an amazing dude. Right. Um, he had some great stories. Wow, you know? Like he was talking about, um, you know, coming out of L.A. in the 30s, you know, you know, playing in these, you know, you know, African-American clubs. And then, you know, doing. he got married to a stripper, um, I think in the 30s, divorced her after five years, never married again. He was on his own for all that time. Um, but probably one of the most sm- smartest men I ever met. Interesting. And then he went to, uh, they, they were doing this Tommy Sm- uh, the Smothers Brothers show. Yeah. And the first year, the Smothers Brothers, uh, it was Tommy, or probably said to the contractor, hey, 
you know, guys, we got to get some color in this band. You know, it's like all these old white guys. We got to do something. You know, it's, you know, they were pretty, you know, ahead of their time. They were, you yeah. know, and um, so the contractor calls Plaz. Plaz can't do it. Recommends Jackie. Calls Buddy Clap. Buddy can't do it. Call say call Jackie. So they get Jackie. Jackie comes in first day. He says they're about to do the downbeat for the show, and the contractor goes, "Where's Jackie Kelso?" He's standing right next to him, right here, sir. I was like, "Ah, oh, Jesus." <laughs> He got the whitest black guy in the band. <laughs> he was like, great guy. Again, these musicians were phenomenal. Yeah, and, you know, and uh, I don't know, just being behind the scenes like that, uh, years ago, years ago, uh, our drummer, you know, I'm in the Meat Puppets, right? You know, yeah. and, uh, our drummer, Derek, it wasn't really like a, a drummer's drummer. You know what Mine. I mean? It wasn't about like the technique and all that kind of stuff. And he never practiced. I mean, it's one of the reasons that that uh, my brother and I, my brother's the guitar player, right. you know, that we took to him because he, he like had said about to be the worst drummer in the world. It was like his concept, you know, he was a conceptualist, but yeah. he was a really, really interesting guy and he had a really wide ranging interest and whatnot. And he actually uh, set up and interviewed, you know, uh, interviewed Hal Blaine oh, years wow. ago. You know what I mean? And yeah. it wasn't from a like, you know, let's talk drums kind of a perspective. It was way more from the cultural side of things. And it was, a, was he doing it here or did it when he was, when Hal was in Scottsdale? Uh, he must, it, maybe he was in Scottsdale. Uh -huh. you know? I mean, this was like you know, earlier, like 81 or something. Yeah, you know? Scottsdale. You know? Yeah. So he must have been out there. And it was a really, really fascinating interview. And, you know, and Hal, I mean, like, that's him on that, uh, on that Hawaii Five intro. Hawaii Five O intro, right. you know, yeah. just and, and and countless other things. I mean, he's considered to be like like your dad, the most you know, dad's the most recorded guitar player. I mean, I think Hal Blaine's, you know, considered to be one of the yeah, most recorded drummers rock of all time for sure for rockers. You know, and just you know, amazing drummer. So you know, not being these stars, I mean, the the thing got the interview got released in this tiny little fanzine. You know that, right. that these friends of ours up in San Francisco were putting out called Breakfast Without Meat. You know, and and, oh, it, cool. and it's and it's an I mean it's an amazing slab of like American cultural history in a way. You know, and it, and it gets put out in this fanzine because these guys are these backup guys. You know, yeah. but it's really cool that suddenly there's these there's a spate of films that have suddenly happened. Yeah. Of you know that are pointing out to people you know who the dudes were that were they were actually making this. Stuff. Yeah. You know, there's that Funk Brothers film. Yeah. About Standing the in the Shadows. Down. Muscle Shoals. You know, that Muscle Shoals film was yeah. is, is twenty an feet to thing. stardom. You know, there's that. And then the ones like the ones, you know, like your film, The Wrecking Crew, you know, that actually are, you know, feature interviews with the people that were involved, yeah. you know, and actually expose, you know, that that are, you know, about the guys that were doing this stuff. Yeah. So so you started making this thing in like ninety six? Yeah. Yeah, I was what was I only twenty at the time? I think no. Yeah, we were we were both we were 20. only twenty. <laughs> we were both twenty at ninety six. God, we look good. Then. Don't we? Don't we still do that? Yes, we. Really. <laughs> I love radio. Of, damn, <laughs> and check out these pets. <laughs> so I love radio. Um, the thing about uh, well, ninety six. All right, so here's what goes on. Let's go back a few years. Dad in late eighties, right? Mm -hmm. He's still working his ass off in movies. I mean, he's doing like you know, Godfather three. He's doing everything coming out at that point in the 80s. And then um, he has a stroke in 92. Um, oh, boy. Yeah, so that stopped him. That was it. Stopped him in his tracks. Just like that. Yeah. You know, if he had his left hand. Right. Couldn't, but the right hand, he couldn't, he couldn't tremolo. He would never... If you didn't know... If you didn't know him, or you would go, oh, what a nice, good guitar player. But he knew. He There's knew. no way I'm taking a gig. Right. Because he there was no way he was going to be put in that situation to be able to have to read and hit the notes and be there for, you know, movies or something like that. But it was over. 
And then about three years later, he was diagnosed with cancer. Oh, boy. 96, I think it was 96. So 96 is when I said, all right, that's it. And it wasn't just cancer. It was terminal cancer, which, you know, I don't, you know, you know so many people in your life that have cancer. Very seldom do they say terminal. There's always something about, you know, you know we go, there's still a chance. But there was no chance, and we knew that. And he... And I just jumped into it. I said, I, I want to tell his story. But it wasn't about him. It was about the group of them. And I quickly put together um, a roundtable discussion at uh, Evergreen Studios at the time in uh, North Hollywood. And it was uh, Hal Blaine. It was going to be Earl. Earl got sick. Uh, Dad, Plaz Johnson on sax, and Carol Kay on bass. Kind of just put them at a roundtable, you know, card table. And I had two cameras just kind of filming them on dollies and stuff. So while I did that, it was the first day of shooting. I continued for the next year to continue to shoot interviews with Nancy Sinatra and Don Randy. Um, I can't remember who else. I got. Oh, Joe Saracino, the producer. Mm -hmm. And I kept going, peace. And then Dad passed away. Okay. I never got to see anything of it, which was a drag. Right. He passed away, and I continued. In 1998, I had this great little piece, 14 minutes, looks great. And I'm trying, like, hustling this, hey, you want to take a look at this? I'm really trying to get this made. And everybody go, wow, this is really cool, man. I'd love to see more footage. Well, I can't see more. I can't show more footage because, A, I can't edit it. I don't have enough. I'm, you know, I need money to basically go shoot this. Mm -hmm. And no one would get help. And the reason was, they said, it was basically economics. You're not going to get the record companies, A, to agree upon being part of this because there's so much music and then, you know, they don't talk to each other. Or there's going to be so much music, it's going to be so expensive, it's not going to be worth it to a distributor to jump in. And it, music docs were the, was documentaries a kiss of death. Music doc on top of that was the next kiss of death. As we, you know, for years people tried to make music docs and get nowhere. Um, but I kept going, thinking there's got to be an angel. Someone's going to come up, and right. you know. And we kept going, and you know, I, I'd go get. I found out like Julius Wechter, who was passing. He was sick. And he was a percussion guy, a lot of Herb Alpert stuff. I went to go interview him because he was really sick. You know, got him and Lou McCurry together, and they he they both passed away. And anybody got sick, I went. I knew I better get to it. I would, you know, spend the money because it was all film at the time. Kept building, building, finally, 2006, 10 years into this, I had so many interviews, but I had nothing to show for it. Right. And my wife, Susie, God bless her, she said, what are we going to do? We just made the most expensive home movie ever. Right. <laughs> we got nothing. But, you know, I, you know, the perfect example, you guys, is like having a property overlooking this amazing, like, beachfront, but you got nothing. You just got the property, you got the plans, you got the appliances, you got the fixtures. But until you build that, you got nothing. Right. So we had to build this. We hired a great editor-producer, Claire Scanlon. And she came in the first month when she was between jobs, and we worked, and she did for free. Said, I love this. Let's try to do see if we could do something. And then when I could still couldn't raise money, and that's when my mom helped us out, and we refinanced again. And, you know, the only people that helped us, I kiddingly say, was Wells Fargo, Visa, MasterCard, Countrywide, Willing to give you money if you pay interest on them. Right. <laughs> Those credit cards just went skyrocketing, and then, then you know, then they cut you off. Um, but we got the film cut in 2008. We got into the festivals, and it was like, all right, cool. South by Southwest, the music fest. Right. We're gonna get discovered, you know. 
and you won a lot of awards. I oh, saw yeah. The film won now, a lot now, of we're, now we're like, oh, but my even God. Even back then, though, I saw in 2008. Yeah, we had like 12 awards you know, over a year and a half. And, we were, and they were like audience awards, even, yeah, you know, stuff like that. Which was even better because right, people dig it. Exactly. You know? It was funny because, yeah, we, listen, even today, I'm not saying it's the greatest documentary. It's not hard hitting. It's not, you know, it is an audience pleaser. Um, it's very, you know, it's. I've seen this film with hundreds of audiences. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I have. Mm -hmm. And it was always the same thing. They go, oh, my God, I can't believe this happened with this music. And they all fall in love with these guys. Now, I'm not saying as a filmmaker. I'm saying as an audience maker. I was lucky as a filmmaker. I was, that was, you know, we try our best, but we got lucky. Right. You know, it just fell into place. And Claire, thank God. But, um, but... No, I was going to say, then what happened is, then we got to that point was, no one would pick us up. Right. after Even after South By and everything. No. No, it was still, we had this bill of maybe 750000 It was probably more, if right. you look back. You know, you know, then we had to start figuring out, all right, what do we do now? No one's picking us up. We have all this great footage. The reviews are amazing. Um, film's killing in audiences. Uh, what do we do? And it was like, that's when we had to figure out another way, and we turned to donations. So yeah. you, you started a Kickstarter campaign. Years later. That was years later. Yeah, we were pre... Just donations. Kickstarter was around. It was just going for don donations. And yeah, well, it was weird in. because, you know, I, I started thinking of marketing-wise. If it, All this footage I had, I'm thinking, all right, we got a DVD. Could be filled. We have all these interviews with all these guitar players, drummers, percussion players, musicians, of I mean, engineers, um, uh, the producers I, in the film, I have Herb Alpert, Lou Adler, um, uh, Snuff Garrett. Um, we got Brian Wilson, Cher, Nancy Sinatra, and uh, Binky Dolans, Peter Tork, Al Jardine. He kept going on and on and on. But then we have Petula Clark, uh, Bill Medley, uh, Barry McGuire, um, Jackie DeShannon. I just did Mike Nesmith last week. And I just did a month before. I just did um, Marilyn and Billy, Dave, uh, Billy uh, Davis from um, Fit Dimension, mm -hmm. and I kept doing this. And even Claire said, "You got to stop interviewing people." She, this, she said this in 2006. <laughs> she says, "You can't interview everybody and expect them to be in this film." I said, "No, that's why God gave us DVDs." There you go. So the extended versions. Well, you know, I, I point out at this point that <clears throat> our uh, producer of of the the Chris Kirkwood podcast and the inspiration for the podcast and the guy that talked me into doing this uh, is my dear friend Bill Cody and Bill is a filmmaker as well and made Athens Georgia Inside Out right. which that's a documentary right I mean yeah, isn't it, no, it's it considered that's what that's called right so yeah how, and it took you how long we actually got lucky with that when we filmed it over a month but what we kind of did was we we were able to raise some money we actually were a boxing promoter helped us out. Wow. And uh, Bill's also a boxer, so. Really? <laughs> well, I am now, but I wasn't at the time. <laughs> but uh, it was kind of a, a different kind of thing. We knew that that scene was only going to exist to film at that point. Yeah. And, you know, one of the bands in it was REM, and, you know, oh, they, right. they just blew up so big. They were on the verge right then, and you could still kind of corral. So you were able to get them before they blew up? Yeah. But it's it's funny because I've watched over the years, I've done two other music docs, and we got Iggy Pop 
uh, search and destroy for five hundred dollars. Yeah. Because in '86, nobody thought there was any money no. in these things, and I think he got like a million dollars for like Lust some for commercial. Life or something. Yeah, yeah, right. for uh, uh, Lust for Life. I yeah. think it was like five years later. It's like, well. That would have sunk me. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> like, well, that, every, and everybody, as you know, everybody's looking for the kill. Yeah. There's no kill in what we do. There's right. no killing in, you know, music docs. There was that art, There was an article. This is great. An article in 2009, The Struggle of Music Documentaries is in uh, Variety. And they were talking about Scorsese with the Stones doc. Mm-hmm. And then they were talking about Ted Demi, director Scorsese, director T- Demi with uh, Neil Young doc. And then they go... And director Denny Tedesco with the Wrecking Crew doc. Sweet. Went, cool. Nice company. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, there you go. Circle my name. A, they call me director. Let's underline that. <laughs> and then, then, then Mark Scorsese. Yeah, yeah, put a line to those two. There you go. But it was like struggling directors. Like, God, if these guys have a problem. But, you know, but they they had the money. They could do whatever they wanted. Yeah. You know. But everybody thinks, you know, record co- I got to say, I don't know if you had this problem, but the record companies were not my problem in the end. Right. It was just the reality of I had 110 songs, and I didn't get d- turned down by any of them. It just took a long time to get the money to raise or to pay these folks off. Yeah, well, I've noticed over the years that it comes and goes. You're right. And uh, we got lucky when we did Athens. It, 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 there were music rights that we had to get, but I can't imagine what... In the 90s, everyone thought soundtracks were the gold rush yeah and all of a sudden because i had a similar thing i had a a film it was a feature of mine that was at sundance right and there was a young lady who was a friend of um the guy shannon from blind melon Mm -hmm. it's like a good friend of her his had gotten this demo deal and she had this song that we loved and we wanted to put it in it and called up whoever it was like warner unichapel and they're like that'll be twenty five thousand dollars we're like it's not even on an album, yeah. and and I'm getting you know uh, Annie DeFranco for five hundred dollars, like, right. and they're like, well, we gave her a hundred thousand dollars, and we need to get it back, and I'm like, well, you're not going to get it back from me, yeah, and so we never used the song. It, she her contract got voided. I'm not saying it was a big deal to be in one movie at Sundance. I mean, it's a small deal, but at it, least she would have had one song does, on it, a DVD as opposed to yeah. no songs on anything. It kills so. me. It just you just want to scream. And go, are you? You know, a freaking idiot. You know, you, you take something when you get at least something. Well, and I would imagine your movie, when people see it, people are going to like go, oh my God, not only are these guys amazing, but I'm going to go out and get that Beach Boys record that I, you know. For the 10th time. For the 10th time. You know, I'm <laughs> to gonna the buy, next well, I'm going to buy it on vinyl yeah. like I used to have it. Exactly. Yeah. Well, that's the other side of it. You know, uh, the stuff that these guys played on, your dad included, I mean, sold millions of dollars worth of you know of, yeah of, mer- of you know whatever records you yeah. know and it was on the radio unendingly now they're all played continually on oldies yeah, or whatever yeah. you know uh uh type stuff and you know money is still being generated from them and these are the guys that actually made the music right you know i mean was there there weren't there weren't residuals right no but no well no here's the he got paid a flat rate no and, well not really you get no? a paid you get to pay your rate you right. know as a union guy and but where they made that can make money is like Don Cushane, a perfect example. Mom mm-hmm. still gets a check if that's used in a movie or a commercial. She does. That's yeah. So my other my other bill, other than the union, or other than the labels and the publishers, for me was I'm going to pay the union. So I went to the union and said, "Listen, we got this film because if a song goes into a different medium, goes into commercial, TV, or film, it becomes another reuse. That's what we call as a reuse." 
And so dad maybe made $50 on Don Cushing. I'll just throw that out there. Well, now it's probably $350. So my mom will get a check for $350 for that reuse in that commercial. Okay. And so it's very fair. Uh, unfortunately, some, some like Motown guys, not always. There's a lot of contracts that aren't there. If there's no contract, they can't pay anybody. Right. Um, it happens a lot. I mean, so those guys were very lucky. But they were very well compensated. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad, you know, dad always, you know, when someone said, well, you know, don't you feel like if you did that opening lick at the beginning, you know, that's kind of like something that's, you know, you, it's your creativity. Shouldn't you get paid more or get a writing credit? And he would say, no. He said, I go there to I do my job. My job is to make the best out of, you know, I want to make that guy smile. If he's smiling, I'm doing my job. Right. So I'm going to play whatever he wants. If I think it's, you know, wrong, I still got to play what he wants. Right. He says, I made hundreds of hits. I made thousands of bombs. Think of all those times he went to work. He's playing three three songs in three hours, three or four songs in three hours on a record date. Do that times four. That's 12 songs maybe a day, you know, five days a week. Thousands of songs. Thousands of songs, recordings that he did, but doesn't mean they were ever hits. Right. He says, I never gave anybody their money back. <laughs> you know, so. Right. Well, I think one of the things maybe, you know, I was just thinking, like the, uh, those Motown guys, I mean, they were strictly, they were the Motown band. Right, know? and they were, and that was, even though those, those guys played a lot of stuff, that was one of the problems I was having with my film. You know, when, it's funny, because six years after I started, that's when Standing in Shadows came out. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh, God, great, you know, another doc. But I never looked at it. And, for, and someone said, hey, don't forget, we were doing uh, IMAX films at the time. We was doing nature films. He said, how many lion docs do we do? There's always another side of a story. So I didn't, thank God I didn't look at it because it's an amazing doc, you know, the beautiful footage and everything going for it. And mine's a different spin on it. But um, th- when I, people would say, well, why don't you just bring it, instead of 110 songs, why don't you just do 20? I said, the problem is, if I told you right now, I'm going to give you Stevie Wonder, Supremes, Marvin Gaye, Temptations, what do you got? It's Motown. You know instantly what it is. But what if I give you Frank Sinatra, Mamas and Papas, Fit Dimension, The Birds, Sonny and Cher, and The Chipmunks? What do you got? You know what I mean? Oh, Alvin! Exactly. It's all, you know. And I always say it's not always, it's, it's quantity, not always quality. Right. You know, L.A. was a factory. Yeah. This was only reason it could happen is there were so many things um, that happened in the early 60s here. Well, one, they had all the studios here. We had everything in place because of the movies. But radio, Top 40 radio, just all of a sudden pushed this market of rock and roll. So now the label's going, ooh, we can make money maybe on this. And that's what it happened. Right. Started pushing more albums out. Liberty Records, you know, did an album a day for like five, six weeks, Earl Palmer said. Can you imagine? An album album a, day? a day. Five or six weeks. Yeah. You, know, you had Vicky Carr, you had Janet Dean, you had uh, so uh, so many, if you look at their catalog, and it ran the gamut. I mean, from rock and roll to probably country, Willie Nelson. It was so amazing. So were they recording like an entire record yeah. in one day? Oh, yeah. I did an interview. Exactly. Because you, you would play, do you know. six songs, <laughs> six sides in the morning and six sides in the evening down to mix in the next day they would mix it the next day that's the thing is what was interesting is um stevie van zandt said this to me recently 
when I talked to him, he said, you realize, and I know this, but he put it in perspective. He says, we're talking about songs that were done in a day, in an hour, two hours, done and mixed sometimes, and then it lasted 50, 60 years as classics. He says, if you think about today, if you had to go in the studio and you had a song, it could take you a week at least. You might to be in a panic. Drum track. Right, exactly. Yeah. The drum track, I mean, it's crazy. Here's the thing is those days, they all had to be in the room together. They didn't have the technology. They had to nail it in three hours. You, legally, they could do three, four songs the union would allow you to do, which prevented overproduction. <laughs> you didn't want yeah. to. So they nail it in three, four hours and then move on to the next gig. Well, as Glenn Campbell said, if you weren't that good, you weren't, you're going to hold us all up. You can't, we are n- we're not going to ask you back. He says, I was playing with Michael Jordan in that room, and everybody in the room was Michael Jordan. Because we had another gig to go around the corner. We had Capitol Records at 12, and maybe a Gold Star at 4. You know, whatever it was, you got to keep moving. Not the same band always. You know, it could have been right. Earl, it could have been Hal, it could have been my dad, it could have been Bill and, or Barney or whatever. But, so, so real quick, so you, you mentioned some of the artists. Let's let's mention some of the songs because I know. Oh yeah, well let's see. Well, I'm thinking of the soundtrack. We got "Be My Baby," "Righteous" uh, for Ronettes. You've lost that love and feeling. Um, all the well, all the stuff from uh, Phil Spector. Then you have uh, "Good Vibrations." You have uh, "Beat Goes On." You got "Boots Were Made for Walking." You had uh, "The Association," um, "Cherish," um, "Strangers in the Night." Everybody, everybody loves somebody by Dean Martin. Um, Mamas and Papas, all that stuff. So Monday, Monday, California Dreaming, all that stuff. Anything from the Fit Dimension was done with these guys. Um, obviously, they're vocal groups, but the thing is, the groups on the on the road, they weren't good enough to, they weren't allowed to do it in the studio, you know, because they needed these guys. Yeah, like that. Like Mr. Tambourine Man. Mr. Oh, that's a perfect example. Tambourine Man is a perfect example of business. Um, like, like let Roger McGuinn play on it or something. Right, because the record company. Well, company Columbia was you know, Columbia. I think that's this is one of the first you know rock and roll groups Columbia's taken over. So it's a Bird's first album. So they hire um, Terry Melcher, the producer, and Terry Melcher was at the time. I don't know if you remember. He was Doris Day. Well, always Doris Day's son. But he was Doris Day's son. But he also did Terry and. Um, Oh, God, help me out. Um, Bruce, Terry and Bruce Johnson was the piano player for uh, who's with the Beach Boys now. Right. Um, so he's producing this this song, Mr. Tambourine Man. And he says to the guys, to the birds, he says, I'm going to use Roger on 12 string, and uh, he'll sing the lead. And I'll just bring you guys in for the vocals. And they were pissed off. They were not happy about it. And they didn't even show up. And But as Terry Melcher, or, or as... Um, McGuinn said, he said, we did the A side and the B side in three hours. He said, when we did Turn, 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 the next number one hit we had, with the birds, it took us 77 takes. <laughs> you know, now, I'm, just, I'm sure the birds are great on the road with that at that point. You know, a lot of these groups are fine when they're out, out of the studio. There's a whole different animal at this time, trying to record versus play. Right. It's a sensitivity. You just can't pl- you you know. And you, you know you know it's a funny observation I just had is that uh, the the you know these guys call themselves the Wrecking Crew, and I think Hal Blaine coined that. Yeah, Hal coined that you because know? that's if there's any controversy, it's going to be that name. You know, because no one there's ninety percent of the folks maybe I talk to don't remember it. Carol has a big problem with it. With what? The name. The name of the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. She, she, she like says, that. well, she. I, 
she says we were never called that i said yeah i know that and that's why at the beginning of the film you'll see in the film i kind of um the thing it was like is it 15 20 30 guys was it called the wrecking crew i don't remember yes it did it doesn't really matter right it's about this group of session musicians that were doing the rock stuff but just the notion, I mean, if, if Blaine actually, you know, said that. Or he said that the, basically the older guys said they're going to wreck the business you know, playing and, this and rock now, and roll. Now, we're looking back on it as these guys that are just the consummate professionals, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, and at the time, the older guys in the in the biz were saying that these guys are going to wreck the thing, you know? Well, and you know what like, it was? and so perfunct. And I think part of it wasn't so much what they, well, probably was what they were playing. You know, the older guys, more established guys that were in the studios doing, you know, you got the the Tony Bennett's and the Sinatra's and all that stuff and or Bing Crosby stuff and you got the movie stuff. All of a sudden they're gonna get a call from a, a you know, a rock guy who's doing around the corner at Gold Star and maybe it's non union. Maybe it's just a you know it's non union or it's a demo. And demos in those days were illegal. And the union said they were illegal, so you couldn't do it. So they would have dark dates, you know, which, you know, basically literally they turn off the lights, I think, when the union guy came. But they would sneak in and do these things. These were the guys who would take the chance. Hal would take a chance. Dad would take a chance because they're breaking in in the late fifties. Right. Well, those demos, it was they, they became hits sometimes. Now they're now they're going. Now they're established. Now they're with uh, Janet Dean. Now they're with Brian Wilson. Now and they're with uh, Herb Albert. It was a perfect example. Was um, uh, Lonely Bull was a scab date. Mm-hmm. You know. They played him like 15 bucks or whatever the date was. It became a hit. Herb went back to the union, paid the fine, and paid everybody the the union rate. Union rate. Wow. So I got goosebumps just saying that. Yeah. Because it's like, that guy made right. You know? And that, that's where I think... So the older guys didn't want to take a chance. Why are they going to take a chance doing a gig that they're already... You know, if they take this gig, they might miss the gig for a movie. So they didn't do it. Right. But, well, fascinating. So, one thing I just have to bring up: your dad played on the Elvis '68 comeback special. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. That yeah. was that was pretty cool, and that's really in the song "Memories" is the with is my one of my favorite songs. Memories. Be, yeah. But it's him playing the gut string at the beginning. That's you your know dad. the Spanish guitar at the beginning. Wow. And that's the great thing about dad was he was the ultimate. He looked like a bull in a china shop. Right. I mean, he was, you know, he had the big, you know, fisherman hat. He had a goatee. He was sloppy. I mean, he totally <laughs> did not look the part of a guitar player with sen- sensitivity. But you put that guitar in his hand, and that especially the gut string, it was like, oh, my God, who is he? And I remember him doing um, in the 70s. Now, you forget, now 70s come around, um, you know, record guys don't know who he is. Now he's done. Now he's in TV and film. So the new record producers, one of them was on Minnie Ripperton. You know, the one. Um, oh God, I can't remember the. Yeah, the big hit with the her on the couch. Yeah, um, yeah. I can't remember, but. Loving it, you. Yeah, yeah, loving you. So it's the guitar, and you know, so he walks in, and they can we help you? They don't know who he is. <laughs> right. It looks yeah. like you know, he's here to move some you know gear and stuff. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm, I'm, you know, Tommy Tedesco, I'm the guitar player. Oh, oh, all right. You know, so go ahead, sit down. You know, not knowing what they're expecting somebody really, you know, you know, going to be, you know, fit the part. And then they apologized later. They said, we thought you were a shoe salesman. I didn't know who you were. 
you know, because it, it's funny how you judge a book by its cover. Right. Um, but the other thing is, do you remember Fernwood tonight? Oh, he, he's on that. Yeah, he's yeah, he's happy. He's in the. He's well, he, a, he played. Tommy, he's in the band. Yeah, he happy played, kind in the Mirthmaker. Oh played my Tommy, goodness, Tommy Marinucci. Tommy Marinucci. How, yeah. How long? How long was that show on? Just like a year? No, no, it was about two or three, three years. No, no, it's, no, uh, no. it's uh, um, Norman Lear. Yeah, but it's um, it, it's uh, the guy Martin Mull. Martin Mull. Martin Mull and and Fred Willard. Fred Willard. Oh, it's Fred Willard's in there. Yeah, that's yeah, right. yeah. And oh, that's that that's where, and that's where you first met uh, Gary Coleman, actually. Yeah. Oh my God, that's like, such a classic, classic. Yeah, scene. Gary Coleman was the he was the late night host who had the Great Show, like before them or something. It's like he would be come on. Gary Coleman would come on and go like, Yeah, I had uh, Sammy Davis Jr. on tonight, and uh, well, he about Gary Coleman when he was a little kid. He, he, he was a little kid. He yeah, was going to adopt him as his son. Yeah, that was the they, skit. Was Martin Moore was going to adopt him, and then all of a sudden they build this show around him. Oh, it's that's like so pretty funny. much the same thing. So what that show was, they called my father up and said, would you come out come out and audition for the show? And my father said, no, I'm not going to audition. He says, I'm done with that. He says, you guys, I go on an audition. You're looking for like a 20-year-old kid who's 150 pounds and nice curly hair. I'm not that guy. They said, no, no, we're looking for a guy that looks like he's a truck driver from Cleveland. He says, I'll be right down. <laughs> right down. I'll be right down. So he gets there and he gets the backstory on Tommy Marinucci now. Is he's, out, he's just out of prison. That's where he got all his good chops. You know, he's learning how to play in prison. <laughs> Plenty of time in prison. Yeah, he's time in prison. But he gets there, and my dad at this point is a total addict with cigarettes. He didn't do drugs, and that was his drug of choice, only drug of choice. He didn't drink, and he, but he ate, gambled, and smoked cigarettes. And if he could do all three at once, he would. I mean, but the cigarettes is what killed him. But the cigarettes, man, he was three packs a day, mm. easy. And if you look, when you look at the film, any time there's a picture of him, there's a cigarette. Um, but they st he wanted to start a cigarette, and the fire marshal said, no, 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 you can't do that here. It was the first day of shooting. And my dad said, you know, in panic, he said, all right, um, I'll get through this, but you know, I'll get you guys another guitar. I'll get you someone to replace me. Because he could not do this job. And Norman Lear said, no, no, just write in guitar player, uh, smoke cigarette. So now if you watch on the, if you go on YouTube, you see... Him in the background always has a cigarette in his hand or in his mouth hanging while he's playing. Now he could, he had the best of everything. He could smoke. He could play his ass off because you hear him in the background ripping across the fretboard. He had Frank Morocco, the great accordion player, genius. Frank Duvall, who was the guy that wrote the Brady Bunch and all those other amazing themes. He was a funny actor, but a great composer. So they had fun yeah. and got to act. And the best is if he got a big call, he could send in a sub, no. so he didn't lose anything. Right. He had the best of both worlds. Ah. Yeah. So some of the other stuff your dad did was film stuff. Yeah. And, and you know, I mean, I just I can't you know, it's just amazing the amount of music that that, that came out of these people I and mean, just for how long they did. So I have a little uh, a few of the films where they go. He, he did like Godfather, Deer Hunter. There you go, just incredible Jaws. Jaws. Um, anything you know? If oh god, Temple of Doom. I'm thinking of things that Temple of Doom. He uses electric sitar. You know. Wow. Enter the Dragon. Enter the Dragon. Yeah, I saw that on the other night. It was like, oh my god. Oh, I saw that in the theater in the seventies. Yeah, it's you know? true. It's like Bruce Lee. Man. Yeah, and you know, here's the, and the thing about those guys. Here's the word. There's a, a difference between studio musicians. You could go, record date is totally different than a movie call. 
or even a, a TV call. And I think there's somewhat of a hierarchy in those days. You had records and you had TV, and then you had the film. When you get to the point of film, you got 80 musicians there, and you're you better be able to nail it. You got a click track. You got 80 musicians there. And if you're imagine all of a sudden you got a cue, all right, you know, guitar player has you know three bars to fill. You know, it's huge pressure. So when they asked him years later, what would you want to be remembered for? What music would it be? You know, he said, you know, Batman or God or Batman or Green Acres, any of that stuff. He said. Even the Beach Boys stuff, whatever he played on the rock and roll, anybody could have done that. Any one of those 12 guys, you know, of the guitar players could have done that stuff. And some of them did all that stuff with them. He said, but when John Williams is saying, hold the first two weeks in June for me, you know, because we got this movie coming up and it's, called, it's all guitar written, you know, written for the guitar, that's when you know you made it. Right. You know, because he's writing it for knowing who he's got. Same thing with James Horner did that. When he had, you know, James Horner would have the, you know, again, his Spanish guitar, knowing who he's got, who he's writing for. Yeah. When he did, when James Horner did Cocoon, and my dad worked with him then, the next time he came back to, with Cocoon, whatever the next Cocoon was, my father said, James wrote things that he, he my father had that, you know, he had this turn, whatever he did musically, he was, it was his thing. Right. James wrote his thing for him on paper right. so that's when he knew he made it yeah. you know um, there's a different you know so that's when you know you've done it you know when you know James or John Williams says hold those two weeks yeah you know yeah, he hasn't called me recently no <laughs> you know but you know it's <laughs> you know and then um, but you know there was a great um, the thing that uh, I ran into uh, the bass player um, Chuck Rainey you know, the great bass player, you know, did all that stuff with Steely Dan and all that yeah. stuff. And he said, I came to town the first time I came to L.A. First gig, I'm, it's like a TV gig. And he says, I don't know your father. And he doesn't know me. And we're in an orchestra and we're in a studio. And all of a sudden the projector's going. And he says, I lose place. I'm lost because there's a time change in the bass line where I'm playing. He says, I'm lost. He says, and my, your father out of nowhere he comes in and hits a chord. Oops, like that. Hits a chord and makes a big noise and it looked at me like, Tommy, you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. He said, all right, rewind. So I roll the projector back, start again. Comes back to the same spot. He's, uh, Chuck says, and he says, your dad hits another chord because I'm lost again. And they said, Tommy, you okay? Yeah, we'll do it this time. No problem. And he turns to Chuck. He says, all right, you're on your own now. <laughs> you know, he covered him. He covered the, the new guy. Right. And that is the greatest, if there was anything my father love, left, is that. He helped the younger guys. I think that is the greatest thing for me. Now, there's a hell of a lot of giving in what they did. You they did, I mean? yeah. You know, I mean, being in the background like that and then seeing your work uh, turn these other, you know, oftentimes younger probably, you know, people into big, huge stars, you know, and, yeah. and being in the background like that. So, I mean, it's a giving position to be in the first place. But as a musician, though, it's also, like, rewarding to... You know, actually have gigs. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. And be able to continue to play like that, and 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 a lot of the you know a lot of the stars were young, and you know, and then you get a little bit older, and the you know it's fleeting. But I mean, it being a being a part of the machinery like that gave him a career, a lifetime yeah. worth of a career. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Well. And they were stars among the stars. 
they were so well respected oh, among their peers. You know, and the, the fact that know. you knew who he was, you know, oh, I totally you were know a kid. Is. Yeah, as a kid, you know, and you know, and would read this stuff about it, and you know, and I mean, it, you know, guitar player had all sorts of stuff in it that, that was like, do I want to get into this? I, I remember when GIT started. You were right. talking about the Guitar Institute of Technology, you yeah. know, and I was thinking, you know, it would be interesting to, you know, actually. Then they started BIT, the Bass Institute, yeah. right? And it was like then PIT, you know, you know which is uh, the piano. Yeah. Okay. No, no percussion. Oh, percussion. Oh, I've heard the. Uh, no, it was K. K. It became keyboards. Okay. Oh, then keyboards, they just went K. to MI, Musicians Institute. Oh, there you go. Yeah, fuck it. Um, but you, you know, and he was one of the founders, or you know, it was it was Howard Roberts and Pat Hicks started that school. Right. Thirty-five students or thirty-eight students in seventy-eight. Yeah, I remember when they started. You yeah. know, and I mean, I was you know, and then. You know, and I was thinking it would be interesting to get an actual grip on music, you know, but then I got a little overwhelmed by it in a way, you know, it was, it was complicated to the degree that I realized my mind didn't work that way. And it was well, really... you know, it's funny because he, he would tell the kids at the beginning, because then he got to, be, you know, it was really big and he would give the seminars there. And he said, listen, you have some of the greatest instructors in this school in the world here. He said, you could sit back and do nothing and get through this, or you could take advantage of whatever you can learn. You know, and that's what it was about. Learn whatever you can, you know, don't. And it's funny because we, it's, drives you crazy. And I'm sure you, we've all been there where you go, you're trying to help some kid or something. They don't show up when you're trying to give them some knowledge. You know, they don't show up to an event where they might meet someone. And my dad was the, the only guy at the, during all this in the eighties, someone called him up, said, Hey, um, I'm new in town, blah, blah, blah. You know, they're looking for work. And he said, well, you know, I don't have anything, but why don't you, hey, if you want to see how studio call comes, come with me. He'd say, meet me at the gate at Universal, and he, the kid would go in with him and would sit back and watch. And Dad would take three or four students at GIT every, you know, whatever sessions he would throughout the year. Right. Um, there was a guy the other day, he came up to me, and it was another great story, was he said, I met your dad at a festival. We were in Big Bear, California, uh, Mammoth. He says, your dad just did his set, his jazz set, and I was with the Beatles band. He said, and he was really interested in going on GIT. Now, my father at this point was very invested in GIT in terms of he was really going, you know, there all the time. And, you know, he was bringing a lot of people in with his the fame that he had at that point. And um, the kid said, I really want to go. And he said, what do you think? And my father looked at him and said, he says, is that your wife over there? He said, yeah. And those kids, yours? Yeah. He says, you making money doing what you're doing right now? He says, yeah, yeah, I'm doing it. He says, you know what? Just go get an instructor, a private instructor. Don't go to GIT right now. You don't need it. you got a family. And it was good because it, he was a real guy. Yeah. You know, he could have told them, yeah, yeah, you know, go, go to GIT, you know, sell them the bullshit. But he didn't, you know. Not that it was bullshit, but everybody has something that is right for them at the right time. Right. And, he's, and that guy was very appreciative because he knew... He would have taken a chance and, you know, maybe that's not going to get you the gig all the time, right. you know, but. So, you know, and that's probably why, you know, he got so many calls. I mean, that has to be a part of it, who he was, oh, very you know, much the guy so. that he was, you know what I mean? And, yeah. you, you know, to be able to play music that well, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it comes from a certain, it comes from who you are, you yeah. know, so obviously, you, you know, your pops had that in spades and, and, uh. I really appreciate you coming down here, and everybody oh, should go out and check out this movie. Absolutely, get yeah, the DVD. If it's, if it's not on rental, it's on rentals on iTunes and video on demand. But uh, the DVD, I was going to tell you earlier when I was that DVD ended up being. I never stopped interviewing people, right. so we have six hours of outtakes. That's awesome. And Magnolia allowed me to do it. I mean, they were I, they didn't want to do it. No one, you know, there's DVDs are like. 
eight tracks to some people. I mean, it's yeah. like DVD. It's all downloads. It's all that. I said, no, no, you got. I promise you. And that's what we did. Is I, uh, you know, I got engineers chapter and all these different folks. Wow. So the DVD is up for. It's on pre-order now, and uh, as how, well as Blu-ray. How do you pre-order it? WreckingCrewFilm.com. And I've I also set up things where you could. Uh, I'll be given a percentage of the Blu-ray or whatever it is towards three charities. You uh, just pick sweet. a charity. So it'll be like Music Care or NAM for education. There's another one called Sweet Relief. Sweet Relief, yeah. Oh, that's Rob. right. You know Sweet yeah, Relief. Yeah, Rob's a good friend of mine. Yeah. I met uh, Rob. They, they uh, do, uh, uh, as long as we're pitching things, uh, yeah. uh, Rob's uh, uh, Sweet Relief uh, brings medical care to musicians who yeah. don't have medical care. And it's... You know, and that's that's really one of the things Robert, that Rob, Rob Max. Max. Oh, right. I mean, that's one of the things that kills me about um, this whole this you guys. You know, I mean, like we all grew up in this environment, and what kills me is when people you asked me or someone asked me earlier, "What do you want to get out of this film?" You know, what do you, what do you want people to get out of this film? I want people to realize musicians are just like everybody else. They got kids, they got food, they got medical bills. Just take out all the music. Right now, take all the music out of your life. What's it like if you took out every radio station that you ever listened to, every record, every song that your parents ever sang to you? What would this? And people just assume, well, you do it because you love it. Yeah, you do love it, but why not get paid for it? Absolutely. You know what I mean? I, you know, just I'm, I know I'm preaching to the. Oh no, definitely. Yeah, but you know, and and it kills me. I want to. I'm going to create a shirt that says uh, five dollar cover, fifteen dollar martini. <laughs> you know how they'll pay fifteen dollars for a martini, but won't give five dollars for the cover right. for a band. Right. You know, but and that's what I'm saying is those. So these charities like Sweet Relief are such they're so important. You know, Mike Picard just passed away, and I know Mike's family. I mean, a lot of these folks have always needed. You know, we all. You know, doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are, people need help. You know. So, um, you and know, it's the better, it's the it's the best side of, of humanity in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, it what, is. Else, what, what else do we have? I mean, we just, you know, what else there is there in the world but each other? Yeah, know? and instead of you know, in the internet work is very negative. Let's let's turn it into a positive. So, you know, yeah. so I'm reminded of Mozart being buried in a pauper's grave. So, well, well, let's know. do something about it. <laughs> yeah, <let's> dig <laughs> him up, dig him up, and dig him up, and get, get him let him know place. that music cares. <laughs> he too. Right. So the DVD's coming out June sixteenth, uh, but pre-order now. And thanks so much thank for coming you guys. in, guys. Yeah, thanks, it was awesome. thanks a lot, man. And uh, you know, here's here's to your pops. Cheers. Today's show was recorded at Winslow Court Studios in Hollywood, California. And one of the first big gigs I played was with the Doors. And uh, I got up there and I said, uh, where's the band? They said, we ain't got no band, it's just you and the guitar. <laughs> I went out with my guitar and opened for the doors in Portland and <laughs> Seattle. And I, when I got back to town, I said, don't book me on no money road, man. I said, I'd rather I'll stay here and do sessions. I can make more money and enjoy it a hell of a lot more than going out there playing, trying to do. There is someone walking behind you. We want the doors. Who, who's the guy with the lead singer? <laughs> Bring Fassel out, you know. <laughs> and I didn't go back out either till I, until after the TV show. Gentleman, I had Phoenix. I had Gentleman of Mind. I said, no, I ain't going out. I'm making more money sitting right here and have a hell of a lot more fun because that was a fun group of people to work with.
Everybody had a great sense of humor. I'll tell you, we had a little bit of snobbery when we first played with Frank Zappa. Your dad, Tommy, and I were on the first Lumpy Gravy album, and everybody there was putting Frank down, Zappa, and including your dad, including me, until he pulled out the music, and we looked at that music and said, whoa. Now, we had some classical uh, symphony musicians playing in the group. He had a bassoon player, bass clarinet player. I remember those two specifically. They were very snobby and said, this music is unplayable. And Frank says, well, can't you at least try? And we're all laughing because Frank had long hair, a long beard, and we're all kind of laughing at him, putting him down. And these two guys didn't want to know. They didn't want to even touch the music. And Frank says, if I pick up my guitar and play your part, will you? can I prove to you that it's playable? Impossible, it's not playable. So Frank picks up the guitar and he's playing and your, bro, your dad and I go behind him and we're looking at the music and we said, son of a bitch, he's playing that music. And we all respected Frank right away, man. And we told everybody, shut up, be quiet. Listen to this guy, he knows what he's talking about. Another real funny thing happened on those sessions. Frank got us psychologically, he says to Tommy, he says, can you play that fast, that part faster than Amo can on xylophone? Can you do that faster on guitar? He says, hell yeah. I said, no way. And your dad bet on there, come on, put up $100 right now. I'll play that faster than you. He said, no, no, both of you play it together as fast as you can play it. So we did, we played it, and he's trying to beat me, and I'm trying to beat him. He says, wait a minute, turn the tapes on. And we recorded this a couple of phrases that Frank wanted to hear as fast as possible. When the album came out, Frank sped that up. The, the ones that we played faster than we thought we could even play. Those were the tracks he sped up. But that's how he got us. <laughs> ¶¶